Section 29 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World by Anonymous. An Essay on Matrimony. Socrates, being asked whether it were better for a man to marry or to remain single, replied, Let him do either, he will repent of it. The philosopher spoke like an oracle, leaving the world as much in the dark as to his views of the comparative advantages of matrimony and celibacy as they could have been before. But a vast majority of men have chosen, since they must repent of one or the other, to repent of marrying, deeming perhaps that this repentance is the repentance which needeth not to be repented of. We shall conclude our little treatise on the sex with a few remarks on the subject of, we were about to say, happiness, but as we are content that every married man and woman should judge for themselves as to the happiness of the married state, we will simply style it an essay on matrimony. No event is more important, and none is conducted on many occasions with less prudence than marriage. Providence has allowed the passions to exercise a powerful influence in this matter. Otherwise, the cares and anxieties with which it is attended, would deter most persons from launching their bark of earthly happiness on the great ocean of matrimony. But too frequently the passions are the only guide, and these stimulate to bewilder. They exhibit pleasing and attractive imagery, and then the possession destroys the bliss. Love is a pleasing but exciting passion. The eye is delighted by form, manners, and the expression of the features, the ears by musical language, and the imagination paints future joys, all of which contribute to one great principle, that of receiving happiness from those we love, and evincing love for those from whom we derive our happiness. As the crystal streams are absorbed by the sun, and distributed as brilliant clouds in the heavens, and then fall and run in their accustomed channels, and thus the rivers supply the clouds, and the vapours the rivers, so is the interchange between love and happiness. This will agree with the opinion that love may be occasioned suddenly, because enjoyment is expected, or it may arise gradually, because the unattractiveness which first existed may be succeeded by attraction. There was no appointment by nature of particular persons for each other, but we may expect, among a great variety of occurrences, to meet with some singular and astonishing coincidences. Human beings appear to be left in this respect, as in many others, to their own judgment. If they act discreetly, they enjoy the comfort of it, but if otherwise, they bring upon themselves a disadvantage. The happiness arising from an union depends chiefly 
on the character of the persons who are concerned in it. If men and women were as consistent and virtuous as they should be, the connubial bond would be soft and pleasant. But as these effects do not always arise, where is the fault? Which is better or more worthy, the male or the female sex? This is rather a difficult question, and let the palm of superior merit be awarded to either, the imputation of prejudice would be connected with the decision. But fortunately there is little difference. One varies from the other in particular qualities, but if the aggregate of merit be taken in each, the amount will not differ much. Education forms the principal variation. Men are instructed in the more active and laborious employments, women in the more sedentary and domestic. Dr. Southey says that if women are not formed of finer clay, there has been more of the dew of heaven to temper it. Richard Flecknoe, a contemporary with Dryden, observes of the female sex, I have always been conversant with the best and worthiest in all places where I came, and among the rest with ladies, in whose conversation, as in an academy of virtue, I learned nothing but goodness and saw nothing but nobleness. It must be granted that women in general possess more of the sweetness and softness of human nature, while men are endowed with more vigorous virtues. Women are gifted with more fortitude, and men with more valour. Jeremy Taylor says, Marriage has in it the labour of love and the delicacies of friendship, the blessings of society and the union of hands and hearts. Cooper has also alluded to the advantages of a matrimonial settlement. O oh, friendly to the best pursuits of man, friendly to thought, to virtue and to peace, domestic life in rural pleasure past. Marriage is frequently an union of interest. The happiness of one is made a source of enjoyment to the other. It is for life, because it is most agreeable with the inclination of mankind, that friendship, esteem and love should be permanent. In this instance, a continuance of the union constitutes no small part of the bliss. The expectation of a durable connection makes men careful, otherwise they would marry and unmarry every week. There is, by the arrangement of the Almighty, a comparative power or influence vested in the man, because, agreeably with all good government, some are and must be greater than the rest. But then, as Dr. Beattie observes, the superiority vested by law in the man is compensated to the woman by that superior complaisance which is paid them by every man who aspires to elegance of manners. And besides this, the husband has frequently the nominal, while the wife has the actual power. Like as the helm doth rule the ship, so she regulates all the household affairs. This is proper when the husband allows it, and he ought to do so when his wife is capable of managing these things. But when the inclinations of his eve run perversely, when he is conscious that he has reason on his side and she only folly, and yet he is vacillating and yielding, he is unmanly and inconsistent, he sacrifices future happiness to present peace. Every woman, it must be granted, is not a sensible one, and there is nothing, as Lord Burley observed to his son, more fulsome than a she-fool. 
if Socrates had properly controlled his Xanthippe before her disorder had increased beyond cure, it would have contributed to her happiness and his own. Prince Eugene observed, on one occasion, rather satirically, that love was a mere amusement, and calculated for nothing more than to enlarge the influence of the woman, and abridge the power of the man. Goldsmith's hermit said to his lovely visitor, And love is still an emptier sound, the modern fair one's jest, on earth unseen or only found to warm the turtle's nest. But love is an actual, a powerful, and a beneficial principle if it be properly regulated. Among married persons there ought to be as much love as would induce either to yield in trifling matters, and there ought to be as much reason as would enable both to act correctly. Matrimony should be something like the union of the ivy and the oak. The latter is firm and capable of supporting its more tender companion. The ivy, however, must follow in some measure the humours and windings of the oak, but they grow together, and the longer they continue, the more closely they are united. There have been many instances of great attachment. Portia, the wife of Brutus, when she heard of her husband's death, swallowed burning coals that she might go with him. Alceste, wife of Admetus, king of Thessaly, sacrificed herself for the safety of her husband. This monarch was ill, and when the oracle was consulted, it was declared that he would not recover, except some friend would die for him. And as no one else would do it, the wife heroically drank a cup of poison. Paulina, the wife of Seneca in his old age, was young, beautiful, and accomplished, and she was so much attached to her husband, that when the veins of Seneca were opened by the command of Nero, she caused her own to be cut, that she might also bleed to death. When Conrad III had taken the town of Vinsberg in Bavaria, he allowed only the women to go out, but they had leave to carry with them as much as they pleased. They loaded themselves, therefore, with their husbands and children, and brought them all out on their shoulders. When love is genuine, when professions are sincere, and the practice agreeable therewith, when health is enjoyed and as many comforts as are necessary for this life, when children grow up in vigour, good behaviour and mental improvement, when old age is solaced by the company of each other and the kind attention of daughters and sons, then matrimony is a cause of happiness. But if all these enjoyments were the lot of every married person, men would become too much contented with the present life and they would scarcely think, as they sail on smoothly, of the haven for which they are bound. Besides, the fascinations of domestic life would attract them from many duties which they owe to their fellow creatures. There are then many disadvantages connected with matrimony. There is so much ignorance, perverseness, undue inclination for power, disposition to contradict, anger, jealousy, hatred and versatility among human beings, that many unpleasant occurrences will necessarily arise, and especially in the marriage state, because here most of these feelings are brought into action, and are most sensibly felt by those who are subject to their influence. He that paints the experience of human life in brilliant colours only gives a flattering, 
and deceptive representation. He may just as well pretend that the heavens are always cloudless. People soon discover that there are sorrows in the world as well as joys, unpleasant as well as pleasant events. Hence arises the advantage of examining, of pointing out and endeavouring to avoid the ills which flesh is heir to. The perpetuity of marriage under pleasing circumstances is its most lovely character, but the same peculiarity under a different aspect is its principal source of misery. It is too frequently a state of bondage which thousands once fast chained to quit no more. But what exists and cannot be removed should always be borne as patiently as possible, and thus we may keep a cheerful heart when another less prudent would be gloomy. Besides, an ill temper makes every condition of life unhappy. A cheerful disposition will throw a gleam of sunshine over the scenery of a November day. Some people very foolishly make themselves uneasy because they are bound. Sir Jonah Barrington seems to think it a natural propensity. He says, The moment any two animals, however fond before, are fastened together by a chain they cannot break, they begin to quarrel without any apparent reason, and peck each other solely because they cannot get loose again. But it must be remembered that people enter into marriage with a knowledge of the permanency of the union, and perhaps they seldom repent except they had been deceived, and this we may hope would not occur frequently. After the Romans had introduced a law of divorce, no respectable person for the space of forty years availed himself of it. Divorcement was much practised among the Jews and was productive of great evil. One of the Jewish doctors asserted that if a man beheld a woman who was handsomer than his wife, he might put away his wife and marry her, and thus all the wives in Judea except the handsomest might have been divorced. Josephus observes on one occasion very coolly, about this time I put away my wife, who had borne me three children, not being pleased with her manners. One cause of unhappiness in a married state is too little affection, and in other instances, although affection may be possessed, it is not shown. Montesquieu observes that women commonly reserve their love for their husbands until their husbands are dead. Sometimes a mortal hatred springs up, which induces a man like Henry the Eighth to cause the murder of those whom he has sworn to love and preserve, or a woman like Livia to poison her husband. Not only is a great dissimilarity of rank and condition a cause of dislike, but a great variation in age is frequently the cause of distrust and unhappiness. The proportion which Aristotle suggests, a man of thirty-seven to a woman of eighteen, may be appropriate in one respect, but it is objectionable in others. The life of the female is just as long as that of the male, and the union of middle age and youth, where the one is twice as old as the other, will not always allow an uniformity of feelings and disposition. The case of Seneca, to which we have alluded, and that of Sir Matthew Hale, are exceptions. Youth is generally gay, thoughtless, and frivolous, but life in more advanced periods is sober, thoughtful, and dignified. A husband should not be deemed a teacher or guardian for the wife, so much as a companion, 
and the wife should not be considered as guardian for the husband. There ought to be a mutual sympathy, and in most respects, an equality of influence. End of section 29